From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. As you probably know, the global Catholic Church is in the middle of a three-year synod process on the topic of synodality. The synod has featured thousands of listening sessions with the faithful all over the world, and it's the biggest consultation process like this in the history of the church. Maybe you've been involved in one or more of these meetings yourself. And one of the key themes that has emerged again and again from the reports on these meetings is women's leadership in the church. Here's how the document synthesizing the synod process in the United States put it, and I'm quoting here. There was a recognition for the centrality of women's unparalleled contributions to the life of the church, particularly in local communities. There was a desire for stronger leadership, discernment, and decision-making roles for women, both lay and religious, in their parishes and communities. People mentioned a variety of ways in which women could exercise leadership, including preaching and ordination as deacon or priest. Ordination for women emerged not primarily as a solution to the problem of the priest shortage, but as a matter of justice. Close quote. If you're going to reflect on women's leadership in the church, you just have to talk to Dr. Phyllis Zagano, who's my guest today. Dr. Zagano is a scholar based at Hofstra University in New York, and she is one of the world's leading authorities on the past and present of women's leadership in the Catholic Church. I invited her onto the show to talk about her new book, which is titled Just Church, Catholic Social Teaching, Synodality, and Women, which was just published by Paulist Press. We discussed the history of women serving as deacons in the Catholic Church, plus some ways the church might better empower women today. I learned so much from this conversation, and I think you'll really enjoy it. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, Dr. Phyllis Zagano, welcome to AMDG. Thank you so much for taking the time. How are you? I'm great, and I'm so happy to be with you today. So we're here to talk a little bit about your new book, Just Church, Catholic Social Teaching, Synodality, and Women from Paulist Press. Um, maybe you could just start telling me a little bit about why you wanted to write this book, why you thought it was an important thing to to do right now. Well, you know, we're in a fabulous time in our church. The Synod on Synodality is not even halfway halfway through, and, and people are talking about church. And, and I think it's important to, to understand the, uh, the history where we've been, um, the uh, the fact of the present, uh, where we are, and, and what the possibilities are for the future. So that's what I'm writing about, and that's what I wrote about. So maybe we could, I know for, for you, one of the big topics that makes its appearance here in a book, and if you in this book, and you've written about a lot and speak about a lot, is the role of women uh, in the church, and uh, especially kind of historically. Um, and one of the big conversations that makes it into this book and the one that's you know being talked about a lot right now, women in the, the diaconate. Um, and I know that that is a question um, that uh, folks are interested in learning about. And sometimes when I hear about that, I hear the, the word restore, restoring women to the diaconate. Now, for me as a 30-something-year-old, I've never experienced women in the diaconate. So for me, it would be new. But I think one thing I've heard is that this is not – 
something that would be brand new, but a restoration. And as someone who is an expert in that history, I was wondering maybe for our folks who, who don't know too much about that tradition and the, the history, what do we know about that? What have you learned through your research uh, about this tradition? Well, you know, you'd have to be 900 years old to uh, remember uh, a woman deacon. Uh, the last one uh, I know about, or the ones I know about, were ordained in the middle of the 12th century in northern Italy by a bishop named Otto, or Ottoni, um, in Lucca. And uh, uh, before that, really, from the beginning of the formal use of the liturgies and terms about ordination, women were ordained uh, to serve in diaconal roles uh, in various places at various times by various bishops um, throughout the history of the diaconate itself, because the diaconate died out uh, for mostly uh, by the 12th century, uh, having been overtaken by the practice of only ordaining men who were to be ordained as priests for only ordaining men uh, as deacons if they were going to be uh, if they were going to be ordained as priests. So, uh, women women deacons uh, basically disappeared along with the entire diaconate. So, if we go back to the to the very beginning, I know a name that we hear a lot uh, from St. Paul's letter to the Romans is Phoebe, who is a saint in the church. Um, what do we know about? Phoebe and, and her role? Well, we, we don't know a lot about Phoebe. We know she probably was not ordained, but Phoebe is also the only person in scripture who is given the job title deacon. She's not called a deaconess. She's called a deacon. And she is the person who carried the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. Uh, we, don't, we don't find out about that in church because the lectionary, uh, really around the world, lectionaries skip from the end of chapter 15 of St. Paul's letter to the Romans to uh, chapter 16, verse 3. And it's chapters 1 and 2 uh, during which Paul identifies uh, Phoebe as the deacon of the church at St. Crée. She probably was a, a businesswoman. Uh, he also calls her a supporter of, uh, of the work of the church. Uh, she may have been um, on her way to Rome for business, and, and it's pretty far from San Crey or Corinth to, to, to Rome. Um, so I find the amazing thing is that she made the trip at all. But it's, it's, it's really understood that um, she did take Paul's letter to Rome. She probably explained the letter uh, and the Christian teachings to the, the small Christian community in Rome at the time. So we don't know a lot about her for several reasons, not the least of which is she's been scrubbed from the lectionary, indeed, if she ever belonged in it, if she ever was in it. And uh, we also have had her, mm, her feast day overtaken in the late 1960s by uh, Pope Gregory I, whose date of death really was in March during Lent. And uh, the argument is that they had to move him out of Lent to be properly uh, memorialized. So there is a obligatory memorial on the 3rd of September for St. Gregory. Um, so really the Catholic Church is, uh, and the Catholic churches, are the only churches that don't uh, recognize uh, St. Phoebe uh, in the lectionary or on her feast day. Uh, the, uh, the Anglicans and the Orthodox actually uh, still celebrate uh, St. Phoebe on September 3rd. So you mentioned we 
the best historical evidence sounds like suggests maybe she wasn't ordained. Do, is there evidence of women being ordained as deacons, or having you know hands laid on them, sacramentally ordained? What do you uh, know about that? I know it's a oh, little sure. bit in, in the book. Well, there's a whole there's a whole lot of, of evidence. Uh, there were there were no ordination ceremonies at the time. I mean, if you want to call Saint Paul's uh, commissioning her to bring the letter uh, an ordination, that would be a loose use of the term. We talk about sacramental ordination. Uh, we're talking about the formal liturgies and ceremonies of which there are many for the ordination of uh, women as deacons, for the ordination of men as deacons. Uh, uh, there's one li- li- a liturgy that I've seen that simply says, if you're going to ordain a woman, you use these pronouns. And if you're going to ordain a man, you use these pronouns. Uh, at least three of these documents are in the Pope's backyard, actually, in the Vatican Library. But the actual manuscripts are in libraries uh, all over Europe. And uh, the ordination ceremonies uh, are uh, known to have been used equally for men and for women inside the sanctuary, um, during the Mass, uh, the bishop laid his hands on the ordained women and, and invoked the Holy Spirit. It's called the epiclesis or epiclesis. And, uh, and he called them deacons. Uh, he gave them a stole. They self-communicated from the chalice, which is a big deal. And uh, as I said earlier, that he called them deacons. Uh, so there is a lot of evidence of women being ordained as deacons, during the Mass, in the same ceremonies uh, as men uh, ordained as deacons. Uh, and that's actually incontrovertible uh, evidence uh, that's out there. I did have a question about ordination specifically, sacramental ordination. And in the book, you talk a lot about you know lay leadership and the fact that women all over the world are leading churches, serving in all kinds of roles. Um, and also, at the same time, uh, you, you criticize clericalism, as Pope Francis does, and you quote him doing that. Um, and a question I know I've heard about ordaining women deacons is, isn't, shouldn't we be focusing on kind of enhancing lay ministry in the church instead of adding another clerical layer or class? Is it clericalizing women? How, when you hear that question, which I'm sure you have, uh, how do you respond to that? Well, if, if you don't want to have or women ordained as deacons, then don't ordain anyone as a deacon. Uh, I think that uh, in the church, we have developed a, a schema, a practice, if you will, of having certain individuals specifically trained um, spiritually, humanly, intellectually, and pastorally formed for uh, specific ministries. We're not talking about management here. We're talking about actual ministry to the people of God. Now, that implies that, uh, and the ordained person uh, is usually given faculties for sacramental ministry. Uh, Yes, lay people can do uh, a lot of the things that uh, sacramental ministers can do, but chances are they they don't have the extensive specific training. I wouldn't say none of them do. None of them does. But um, they, they don't have the, uh, uh, the training, the ordination, and the faculties given to them permanently by the bishop. And uh, if, if, I, I would simply say if you don't want to ordain women as deacons, then don't ordain anybody as deacon. But uh, Vatican II disagrees with that, and it restored the diaconate as a permanent vocation 
uh, at the time for married men. Uh, and I see no reason why women can't be uh, returned to that ordained uh, ministry. So that is one thing, too, I've learned a little bit about, and I'm sure you know, so that and can say more about. But the sense that, so the, the permanent diaconate restored after the Second Vatican Council, and at the time, it seemed like it is something, and even to this day, is more common in the global north, so say the United States, North America, Europe, mm-hmm. uh, whereas there were fewer, less uh, demand for that in, in the global south at, at the time. Um, is is this is there a call for this coming from other places, or is this kind of or, is the, or the call for ordaining women? Is it from a more kind of privileged place where we don't have as many life and death concerns? I'm just curious if you could tell a little bit about the the context, global context of the uh, the interest in uh, in having uh, ordained women as deacons again. Yeah, first of all, there's no such thing as the permanent diaconate. It's it's a bad term. The diaconate is a separate ministry, um, and it is. Uh, lived as a permanent vocation by uh, many thousands of men around the world. The uh, priesthood, if you're going to talk about the permanent diaconate, you have to talk about the permanent priesthood, but (laughs) then you'd have to talk about the permanent episcopate. Uh, There's one diaconate, and it uh, fortunately or unfortunately has lived for only six months to a year by priest candidates, and uh, that's not the way it used to be. The diaconate used to be understood as a totally separate ministry um, responding to the, um, uh, the direction and call of the bishop, just as the priesthood was a separate ministry responding to the direction and call of the bishop. Uh, around the world, I can tell you that I have spoken recently, mostly by Zoom, um, to women and men in Australia, New Zealand, Africa, uh, Scotland, the United Kingdom, Ireland, uh, certain places in uh, in uh, the Philippines uh, and in Brazil, I think. And, and the call for women deacons is really, I think, a call for ministry. And I don't care whether we're talking first world or third world. I think there's always a need for more ministry. The new apostolic constitution reorganizing the Roman Curia is entitled "Preach the Gospel," and I think that that is really what uh, the diaconate, the deacon, is charged with preaching the gospel. And so, certainly, lay people can preach the gospel. Certainly, deacons can preach the gospel. Certainly, priests can pre- preach the gospel, and certainly bishops can preach the gospel. But why not have everybody uh, involved in the task of evangelization? Uh, I. I uh, I, I sometimes think, you know, um, I, about the TV program MASH, where uh, Hawkeye was – no, Father Mulcahy was out, on the, uh, was out on the field, and he had to perform a tracheotomy. And through the radio, uh, he was given instructions on how to perform a tracheotomy using a bolt-point pen that he would cut and put in the person's uh, throat. Well, that's very nice that he knew how to do a tracheotomy, but quite frankly, I would have preferred, if I were in that situation, to have Hawkeye near me to do the tracheotomy. And so I would make the analogy that while um, anybody and everybody can do many of these things, 
at certain times and certain places and certain levels, I think it's better to have the individual who, as I said earlier, is trained, ordained, and given faculties uh, by the bishop. Uh, it just, to me, makes makes com- it's common sense to have uh, uh, the ratification uh, of ordination for uh, certain ministries. So against this backdrop for you and this, this scholarly interest of yours, you also in the book are writing a lot about synodality. And I'm curious for you as someone, again, who has been writing about this, researching this, and now seeing at least, well, this current synod on synodality, this process is listening and gathering up of reflections from around the world, plus the earlier synods in Pope Francis's papacy. Uh, what has surprised you about the synod process? What have you found particularly interesting, especially, again, given your interest in, in women's leadership in the church? Well, around the world calls for uh, the place of women in the church, whether as lay people or as, uh, as ordained uh, people, is stunning. And uh, what I find very interesting is that, uh, at least in some of the uh, uh, some of the documents I've read, as the call for ordained women is processed through the national phase, and then really recently I saw one document processed through the continental phase, um, the call is watered down. And by example, I would say that in, say, in a diocese or in a parish, first of all, people are calling for women ordained. Uh, My interest, of course, women ordained as deacons would then go to the diocesan level where they would say, well, yes, some people think about women as deacons. And then at the national level, they'll say, well, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about women in the church. And then by the continental phase, uh, is saying, well, yeah, there's there's a lot of discussion. So, so um, I, I I think that, however, and I and I do agree uh, with conversations I've had with people um, in the Senate Secretariat that even where it doesn't work, it works because there are the official documents, and then there are the public discussions such as we are having. I think it's extremely important that uh, the entire church uh, really pray. Uh, and discern uh, about the needs of the church uh, to serve the needs of the world. I mean, um, the planet is on a disaster, a a course towards disaster. The the people of God are suffering in so many places. You, You look at the newspaper and it doesn't have to be in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, it can be in Nashville, Tennessee, where horrendous things are happening. So um, uh, I have long said that the antidote for all the church, all the world's ills, is the gospel. And so I would return to the brilliant to me title that of the Apostolic Constitution, the task of the Roman Curia, which is the task of the entire church, which is to preach the gospel. One piece of the preaching of the gospel that you spend a lot of time in your book on is Catholic social teaching. And Catholic social teaching, maybe we kind of heard that or we heard some things. I know that is often referred to in some circles as the best kept secret of the church. Have you heard that description of Catholic social teaching? And does that ring true to you? Well, I have, of course. You know, we think that Catholic social teaching um, generally is uh, begins with Rerum Novarum in 1891. And uh, Leo XIII was facing a new 
really a new world. Uh, and so he's talking about the new things. Um, you know, if you think about the end of the 19th century, particularly in, in Europe, uh, all you have to do is read uh, Charles Dickens to understand the terrors and horrors of what was going on. But what Leo wrote um, was he was, he was he, and, I, and I have a quote here, he's complaining about uh, uh, what goes on. Uh, about the, the relations between master and workmen and the terrible poverty of the masses. But he, uh, he ends this paragraph that I wrote uh, in the prevailing, it's showing itself in the prevailing moral degeneracy. And, and I was like, this could have been written yesterday. And it was written in 1891. The, the Catholic social teaching, realistically speaking, is applying the gospel to the realities of of its of their of its time, and so whether it's 1891 or today, um, Catholic social teaching will criticize uh, the way the world, uh, in general, is disregarding the needs of the people of God in the light of the of the of the gospel. I've heard the best kept secret line for a long time since I was a teenager, probably. Um, why do you think that persists? Well, I think there's terrible preaching uh, around the world, probably, but certainly in my experience in the United States, where um, 90% of what uh, a lot of people tend to hear in church from the priest is about um, the latest movie they saw or their mothers or something that happened to them in seminary. And maybe ten percent uh, an attempt at, try, at uh, applying that to the gospel of the day. You know, uh, when you get to the talk about the gospel of John, uh, it's a very hard gospel. It's very difficult to understand. So I can, you know, uh, I can have some sympathy for uh, the men who uh, find it uh, uh, that they should be more entertaining by telling stories, but I would also say there are plenty of homily books out there and you can certainly print something off the internet uh, to give to feed the people uh, of God who so need to be nourished by uh, explications and explanations of the gospel. I know in your book, again, you talk about so modern Catholic social teaching, you know, starting with Ram Novarum in 1891, but certainly the church fathers and, and saints obviously kind of lived this tradition since the very beginning and going back to the gospel. Do you have either a, a saint or a particular gospel passage you find when you're teaching or giving public talks uh, where you find people are really kind of drawn to that example. I know that's putting you on the spot for a particular example, but in terms of like a patron of you know, Catholic social teaching in action, or again, a, well, maybe a, a passage or a story, things that you, that you come back to that you find uh, kind of capture people's imaginations. Well, uh, lots of times I talk about Catherine of Siena and she's really not exactly a father of the church, but she, she did in her time, I think what, uh, Pope Francis is trying to do, which is to turn the church around and get it to look at the realities of life and to, um, you know, stand up and take charge uh, and, and apply the gospel to the needs of the day. I mean, you can t choose any era in, in, in the history of the world, and certainly we're not in the worst. I mean, there are some popes and some, uh, some others in the history of our church uh, who have pretty sketchy histories. Uh, but I think that the um, uh, to, to uh, uh, 
to single out one or another, uh, it would have to be in the context of their their era. So I would look at the words of Francis. I would look at Fratelli Tutti. I would look at Laud- uh, Laudato Si. Um, I would look at uh, uh, any of his allocutions uh, uh, to individual groups. Uh, I think I think the uh, his his first encyclical, um, Lumen Fidei, is very interesting. It's the it's the only encyclical really in history that was written by two popes. He picked it up from uh, from Pope. Benedict, but it begins Francis's papacy, and it talks about how the Christian faith is really the light of the world, and 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 that to me is a stunning, a stunning um, uh, thought and concept. It doesn't decry other religions or faiths, uh, but it does present Christianity as a beacon. Uh, leading us toward um, what we need to understand. I think Laudato Si uh, is perhaps uh, an even more stunning comment, um, mostly because of the pushback he got. You know, what does he have? To, what does he know about science? Well, he happens to have been a chemist, but other than that, um, it really what is it? Eight years ago, it, it predicted and predicts still the way our planet is is hurtling itself towards a doomsday. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, and, and Fratelli Tutti, um, his third encyclical, you know, we're all in this together, basically. <laughs> you know? and, and if we don't get along, um, more than, than going along to get along, we need to get along. And, and the way we need to get along, if we can return to the real process of synodality, is through prayer uh, and conversation and genuine discernment in, in the Ignatian uh, t- uh, use of the term. Um, we need to figure out what we've done. Uh, we need to understand what we're doing. But I think the third part of that colloquy to really take a look at what we can do has to be rooted in what the question, what can we do for Christ? What can we do for Christ's people? What can we do for the world? Um, and so it, it all, it does circle around Catholic social teaching, but Catholic social teaching only insofar as the gospel um, is, is being proclaimed. So you've been studying this, writing about it, watching, uh, participating for decades. And I'm curious now kind of where we are within this synod process, within this moment in the church, does it feel different? Does the conversation feel different to you today than it would have 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago? Well, I am that old. Uh, I think that, <laughs> I think that, uh, part of it is that, uh, women are part of the conversation. You know, when I, I was, uh, a member of the Pontifical Commission for the Study of Women in the Diaconate, which met over a period of a year and a half, two years in Rome, uh, sporadically. We met four times. But over that time, I lived for five months off and on in the house of the Holy Father in Doma Sancta Marta. And I can recall having um, several dinners with a, a cardinal, not from America, who said, you know, Phyllis, uh, 20 years ago, our conversations wouldn't have happened. And, and these are dinner conversations. Uh, um, you know, where are you from? What are you doing? What do you think? Um, 
do you like the pasta? Do you want a peach? <laughs> you know, and uh, and he said, yeah, twenty years ago these conversations wouldn't have happened. He said, no, actually, ten years ago these conversations would not have happened. So I think even during Pope Francis's pontificate, uh, it has uh, it has taken off uh, to the point where all all points of view may not be accepted, but at least they're heard. And specifically, women are being included in the conversation, mostly in the management conversation, uh, uh, preach the gospel, the apostolic constitution allows for any layperson to be appointed to uh, major positions within the curia. But again, that's, those are just staff positions. They are the staff of the Pope. Uh, they have no particular jurisdiction uh, and certainly no governance. But, uh, but the mere fact of including uh, lay women and men, and we do have a lay man as the head of a dicastery, the Dicastery for Communication, um, I think it's, a, it's an opening up of our church um, for a step back uh, into the past for the future. Reflecting on the future, I, some of me wonders, you know, this is, a lot of these things, developments happening, clearly has been a priority of the Holy Father to open that conversation, to, to change the curial structures, to invite women into places where they hadn't been before. Some of me thinks too, though, well, if the next Pope comes in and he doesn't care about this in the same way, it's pretty easy just to say, okay, we're going to put that on hold for now. We're to do something else like a big Eucharistic revival or something, which... I, I, that's fine, but uh, there are just are different priorities, right? And so do there have to be some changes, concrete changes that are harder to just to say, ah, forget about it and move on from? Like, what could be some of the things that you'd be looking for to make sure some of these conversations end up with have, making real concrete change? Well, I think uh, the Holy Father, uh, Pope Francis, has already made some concrete change, and it's change that would be very difficult to undo. For example, uh, in 2008, there was a synod that asked for women to be installed as lectors, and nothing happened. And following the uh, request of the uh, synod on the Amazon, when he published uh, his response, Great Amazonia, he said that he was going to, and he actually did, um, formally uh, change canon law so that women, any lay person, not only can serve in the ministry of lector or acolyte, but also can be installed as lector or acolyte. And then uh, to put a finer point on it, uh, and going back to your question about lay ministry, he said, and I'm going to have the installed lay ministry of catechist, which uh, really reminds me of conversations I had with the uh, bishops of Cambodia and Thailand when I was in uh, in the Holy Father's house at dinner one night, and I asked them what they thought about women deacons. And they said, we wouldn't care, male deacons, female deacons. We, we don't have the people educated to the point where we could uh, ordain them. So, so here the Holy Father is responding, I think, to the needs of the church to break open the ministries, you know, um, the cursus honorum, which... Uh, became codified around the 12th century and basically got rid of the diaconate, the cursus honorum was the movement by which a man moved towards priesthood. And so all of the various ministries were collapsed. Um, after the man was tonsured and became a cleric, he then uh, would be uh, ordained or blessed as porter, uh, then lector, 
then exorcist, then acolyte, and uh, then ordained to the major order of subdeacon, deacon, and finally priest. When Vatican II uh, restored the diaconate as a permanent vocation, uh, the minor orders were subsumed really into the uh, installed offices, lay offices of lector and acolyte. And uh, now the Holy Father has said, well, women can be installed formally as lector and acolyte. Who cares? Why is this important? Well, you must serve and be formally installed as lector and acolyte before you are ordained a deacon. And, and I can't see anyone, any pope, any uh, uh, body of legislative text reversing that determination in canon law that any lay person can be installed as lector or acolyte. So the step may seem small, but it is quite, um, it's quite significant. And it's also significant in his, um, in his view, uh, which I, I at first didn't quite understand or appreciate, but his view that it's really a lay church. And what he emphasized again in Court Amazonia was the um, Canon 517, Paragraph 2, Parish Life Coordinator. And he uh, basically said that uh, the individual who is managing the, uh, the parish, and you know, I think he was really thinking certainly of the Amazon region where so many women, particularly women religious, are managing parishes, should be formally, should be formally um, commissioned, named uh, by the bishop, and uh, by implication should be paid properly. And, uh, and then you think about other things. And, and I think that's why he, uh, he didn't accede to the requests of the Amazon Synod for married priests and women deacons immediately. Because think of what happens. Suppose the sister who is running uh, the parish and becomes the parish life coordinator does not want to be ordained as deacon. You know, does that could that cause a problem? Even more so, suppose a sister who's running the parish and she has a married deacon helping her. Um, suppose he becomes a priest. You know, well, all of a sudden a priest shows up on the on the on the horizon, and people kind of think that he's in charge. So I think we have to have a. And I've seen this. I've seen this actually in, in America in a Holy Family Parish in South Pasadena, California. They had a woman running it. And now it's ten years since I was out there, but. Um, and she had three priests who were kind of on staff. She had a huge staff, 26 people, uh, laymen and women, religious priests. And, uh, but she ran the show. She <laughs> ran the parish. And it was a huge plant and a huge parish. Uh, I think really that's what the Holy Father has in mind. And, and when you think about it, it could free priests to, uh, for a couple of things, not the least of which would be to prepare sermons. Uh, so maybe the one last question I can ask you before I let you go is sort of folks maybe who read your book or other things you've written who are then curious about ways that they can kind of be involved in advancing the conversation or in bringing this to other people. What Are there any things you give people as like a kind of concrete steps they can take in their, their own lives, their own churches? Well, you know better than I the various uh, activist groups that are out there. And uh, I, I know that uh, – there are a lot of discussions with a group called Discerning Deacons that has uh, monthly, uh, on the third of the month, events uh, about St. Phoebe. Uh, 
I have been saying to people lately, well, you know, if you're serving as a lector or acolyte in your parish, why don't you apply to be formally installed? Because some folks who have asked, uh, and actually the the response that uh, I've gotten and some others have gotten from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops has been, oh, well, we don't have the liturgies yet. We don't have the official liturgies yet. It'll be two or three years before the end. And then if you push the issue, they say, well, yeah, you could use the regular liturgy, just change the uh, the pronouns. And uh, uh, I, I kind of have this idea of, of women and men who are serving as lectors and acolytes asking to be formally installed. And what would that indicate? Well, Well, that would mean that the bishop would have to actually uh, train them. And I don't know if you've suffered the problems of people most recently not able to pronounce Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but um, people who, who are not trained and don't prepare uh, for their work as lector or acolyte. And, uh, and I think that... Uh, uh, it's a responsibility of the bishop, uh, ultimately, and the responsibility of the pastor to know what's going on in the liturgy. And uh, I think that there's just not, uh, what is the expression, attention must be paid. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Phyllis Agano, uh, thank you so much for the conversation. Your new book is Just Church, Catholic Social Teaching, Synodality, and Women from Paulist Press. And uh, thank you for uh, all you are doing and continue to do and uh, prayers on your, your, for your teaching and your ministry and writing. Thank you so much. It's so good to be with you. We'll talk again. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.